Welcome to the Black Knight Nation podcast, your source for the latest information about your Army Black Knights, with your host, Sal Interdonato. Welcome to the Black Knight Nation podcast. I'm Sal Interdonato. We're back for another edition. Very special guest, Mark Beach tonight. Um, first off, if you uh, want to give us a rate, subscribe, or a review, we're on podcast everywhere. Also, you can check out our uh, website, blackknightnation.com. We'll have, um, I'll have, uh, finally, I'll have the top 10 plays of 2020 season up tonight or tomorrow morning. You can uh, go through those and uh, probably get on my case a little bit for my picks. But uh, let's just jump right into our, our special guest tonight. Mark, it's an honor to have you on. Um, I know when we first met, um, I think we first met in the Army press box, I was covering the team you know, my early days of, 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 of as a beat writer and you have really just, um, I, I just talking to you brought me a lot of enthusiasm for the, for the program's history, you know, as well as the present when I was covering it. So uh, thanks for joining us. Well, that's great, Sal, because I was always conscious of the fact that you knew much more about what you were talking about than I did when you were talking about the Army team uh, week to on a week to week basis. I, you were in there all the time. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I was just going over the book, um, you know, when Saturdays mattered the most, and um, it's your book on the um, 19, 1958 undefeated season, the last great yeah. uh, army team, so to speak. And you know, there's so much detail in that book, and I know it's been it's been a while since you wrote it, but uh, just first off, being a West Point mm-hmm. grad, um, what kind of inspired you for the book in the first place? Well, you know, um. My, I'm the son of a West Point grad. My dad was class of 59. He was, he was classmates with this Pete Dawkins and the other seniors on that, that team. Um, and I can remember going to visit his parents in, in uh, Southeast Kansas is where they lived in a little tiny town called Parsons, Kansas. Um, and I had nothing to do all day. And his copy of his howitzer was out on their coffee table all the time. Um, inscribed to mom and dad. Uh, and I used to flip through it, you know, every day. And I would always stop at the football team, which I was, you know, this was in the seventies and I was just stunned that there was an army team that had been undefeated that had beaten like Penn state and other ranked teams. and was, you know, had been number one and had a Heisman trophy winner. This was just all uh, blew my mind. Um, when army was losing the Navy 55 to nothing and things like that, you know, uh, you know, you know, the lead, the seventies were lean years. Um, and so I, it was always in the back of my head to, to do that uh, or sort of the fascination with that team. And um, by the time I, you know, went through my own process of getting to Sports Illustrated uh, and the time came for me to, to I thought, write a book um, and find out what it was all about because I had no idea what writing a book entailed. Um, that was my one big idea. And my publisher actually said, yeah, we, we buy that book. Um, and so that, that was that kind of got me off and going. And the, the, the real gratifying part of doing it was finding out that it was actually a book um, worthy of, of a book itself. Like when I was, when I was writing, it was a lot of fun. It's amazing. I mean, like I said, just going over it now, some of the details and that season, I mean, I was trying to think of um, the hall of famers on that team, right? Of course we know Pete Dawkins, right? Bob Novogratz is a hall of famer. Bob Anderson's also a hall of famer. I believe he is. Yeah. Yeah, and then Bill Carpenter, I I, I think he might be at all. Yeah, so I yeah. mean, and then there's there were some of the characters like I, I just I was reading something on Harry Walters, right? I mean, I guess he was part of the backfield, but he's also the place kicker. And to me, what's amazing back then is that a lot of these guys played both ways, right? I mean, a, a, a decent amount of these guys played offense and defense, which was it like, was yeah. The, the substitution rules in college were all you know they. One of the reasons Army was so great in the 40s was they could recruit everybody. And, you know, there was a the deferment, but they also like they, they the platoon system was was a huge deal. And, and um, you know, they they gotten rid of that uh, going back into the 50s. They wanted to, like, try to even things out again in college football and help smaller schools compete against bigger schools. And so, you know, they just for the way things worked, like Army didn't go much deeper than their top, you know, 11 or 12 players. And, you know, they really uh, – there were some guys who saw some playing time and some significant playing time, but the guys who saw the most of the time were the guys who were in there the whole game. I mean, you know, um, 
the uh, the oh, I'm blanking on his name, the quarterback. Um, oh yeah, Joe Caldwell. Joe Caldwell was was a defensive back, and he played all the time. Like you know, they 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 were not. Uh, you know, Bob Novogratz. Those guys played much more, but but they did not. Um, there was not a lot of substitution allowed um, in those days. It's crazy. I was just reading up because I'm. I want to see. Okay, they were eight zero and one, right? And the yeah. tie was against Pittsburgh. So I wanted to read up a little bit more on that game. And I saw that Novogratz had eighteen tackles in that game. And also, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I mean, he was an All American <laughs> lineman, right? And he also had eighteen tackles. And something I didn't know about him was his background and how he got to West Point through Blair Academy. And yeah. Blair Academy was a like I live about fifty minutes from Blair Academy, and right now, I mean, they've always been a pretty top re- uh, wrestling program. And back then, they were still pretty known for their. Re- and he was a pretty good wrestler back then too. So I mean, it was right. just like it brought uh, just the like I said, just that kind of detail. And um, I think that another thing. Uh, you know, we know the with Army history, right? We know the undefeated seasons in the 40s and the, and the national championships, and we know Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside. But that backfield in 58, when, oh, even before 58, when you have Dawkins and Bob Anderson in the backfield, I mean, they don't get, I don't know if they get as much, um, not credit, but are they are they up with the, the Glenn Davis my, and Doc Blanchard? My sort, of, my sort of sacrilegious feeling, and I'm biased, of course, after writing the book, was that the '58 team was the greatest Army team of all time? I mean, you know, those war those wartime teams were terrific, but they were playing in a lot of cases against, you know, uh, lesser competition. Um, and, and Army enjoyed a significant recruiting uh, advantages in those days. Uh, and there was, you know, as we talked about the platoon system, um, the '58 team. Those guys played Ironman football. Uh, they played a full schedule. Uh, and they, they were playing really good. Like that Pittsburgh team, I remember going to a West Point lacrosse game and, you know, uh, with a classmate of mine who played on the lacrosse team. And I, I asked him why Army was getting, you know, boat raced by Johns Hopkins, I think. And, and uh, you know, I was like, what what is the difference? And he was like, well, I, I mean, Army can roll out two really, really good lines and Johns Hopkins can roll out three and four and five. Awesome, you know, teams, the lines that would be the first line if they were at Army. Yeah. Um, and that, that's sort of the, the situation Army was facing when they played Pittsburgh. Is that Army already had a small class? I mean, they only got like twenty-three recruits a year for football. Wow! It was it was a it was a very tiny thing. Red Blake was really straining against um, the academy's restrictions, um, and so you know that that fifty-eight team succeeded and, and excelled in the face of a lot of adversity. Uh, and I thought it was you know them going undefeated and being ranked number one and producing a Heisman Trophy winner, I thought made them at least the equal, if not better than those, those teams in the forties. I was going through the scores of the, the, the 58 team. They gave up 49 points in nine games yeah. <laughs> and 14 of those points come to Pittsburgh. So you look at like what, 35 and eight games. That's it's insane. And you go, you know, 14, two over Notre Dame, 22, six over Navy. And it's just like, wow. And, I think that another, you know, you look at the history of Army football, right? Yeah, you have the Heisman Trophy winners in, you know, you know Davis, Blanchard, and Dawkins. But then also centered around that group is Blake, right? And the character yeah. that he was. And, man, just re- rereading your book um, over the summer and then just going over it now. I mean, man, he was he was definitely a different a different right back then, a lot different, right, than, than what you saw probably as a coach. I mean, put in – everything into the program so yeah he was very like you know i think in, in a lot of ways like red blake is still you know a source of some controversy at west point you know i think there were he was one of the things he was training against and when he retired in 50 after the 58 season was a superintendent with whom he was a rival who who wanted to de-emphasize some of the, the football program and it's a you know the age-old conflict you know that you see uh when army was debating about how to get better just a couple of years ago um and a lot of that, you know, predated Red Blake, and and certainly uh, continued through his time there. And the you know the fifty one cheating scandal was really him bringing the team back from that decimation. Was I thought you know the the third and final great stage of his career. You know he he'd had the first stage when he was a young fiery coach, and he had the middle stage when he had all the greatness, and then he had the latter stage when he he rebuilt this program on the you know the, the lonely end offense was like a you know from outer space when, when it was introduced. I mean, nobody could believe it. 
Yeah, what uh, didn't he did he nickname um Bill Carpenter Spaceman or something like that? Something Oh, like that. I don't know. He um Carpenter always preferred the term lonesome end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which Blake thought was uh, I think he wrote in his biography he wrote that it it connotes something that's too forlorn. You know, it's it's a forlorn quality and he preferred lonely end. Um and so there was always a conflict there but but uh, but so Blake was very particular when he talked to the media about calling him the lonely end. Yeah, I mean that's an, that's another part of the season, right? Him coming up with the the it was kind of a formation more than an offense, yeah. would you say, or how how would you describe the? the yeah, I mean that, you know he was he as we talked about Army was you know undermanned. I mean they they couldn't roll as deep as like Pittsburgh and Notre Dame and even South Carolina, and so he was he thought it was suicide. He thought he'd had a great team the year before. And they just um, they they'd worn themselves out by running into these packed fronts. These you know teams were stacking the box on them because they were this running team. And so he was like, if we want to beat that defense, the Oklahoma defense, we've got to dislocate it. And his his uh, solution to that was to split an end way way outside. I mean, there have been wide receivers in football. There's nothing new under the sun. There have been wide receivers before, but. But there wasn't one who'd never come back to the huddle. who was just out there all the time. And that was a move. The legend is, is true. It was a move purely to conserve Carpenter's energy. They left him out there all the time. Uh, and nobody knew what the heck was going on. But he was so far out there that, that nobody knew how to rotate their secondary to cover it. And it opened all sorts of things up in a running game and the passing game, uh, including for the halfback option, which was Blake's favorite play. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's so unique that uh, that offense now you you do see you you do see a formation that might look like it, but back then it was like right. I mean, right, and, and I I talked to Homer Smith actually that he was an yeah. offensive genius and a, a former Army coach, and I was like he was his innovation that that the lonely end itself wasn't the innovation, the innovation was the defensive counter to it, which was to roll a safety up into the flat, and so every time you saw Leroy Butler or Troy Polamalu out there in the flat blitzing a quarterback like that's from the lonely end is, is where that started is rolling the safety up into that that sort of no man's land it's absolutely great that's it, it, the correlation is is just amazing that i could go back that that far um you know we were talking beforehand of that you know you see now with army football having some success and you, you yeah. look at you know they, they had the 11 win season the 10 win season and you know me as being you know younger and not really knowing much about like where do they fit in history i'm asked a lot you know where where, where would where would those teams compare and, and it's it's hard for me to say that you know the the 2016 team or the 2018 team was it's hard to compare eras right i mean right. but but having you on really show really can give some insight into the into the um you know the the glory the so-called glory days of army football right when uh you know yes the 40s and then what the, the Blake years, so to speak, yeah. you know, and I, I think it's, I think it's just a great, it's just great to like these stories. I mean, you look at, I was just reading about Red Blake. It seemed like that he knew the, the night before against Pittsburgh that it was, you know, he was so paranoid about the field conditions. Right. I mean, right. so like, and then he, he had a couple guys check it out. And then of course the field conditions are pretty much what he expected they were they weren't great, and maybe that might have led to yeah. We talked about how good the Pittsburgh team was, but that might have led to maybe slowing down maybe Army a little bit in that game. But it just seemed like he had the sense that was you know he, he just had that sense of uh, maybe a sixth a six sense so to speak about the games the game and yeah, he, thinking ahead. You know, college football was so different. It was I saw a lot of film on a fifty eighteen, and what was amazing to me is just how different football looked back then it was it, you know it's i i honestly believe if you lined this year's army team up against the 58 team they'd probably the this year's team would probably beat them like you know it's it was just it was a, the guys are bigger and they're faster and and uh they just play a different style of football that's more conducive to like what's you know it, it's all built on on you know the, the triple option offense is getting the man uh free and i just think that it's much more sophisticated than anything army had ever seen in 1958 and so it's hard to compare eras but like it was interesting to me that like i didn't realize that the, the 58 team was the last time army was ever not only ever ranked number one but it was the last time they were ever ranked in the top 10. um and they, they've had some they've had some good teams it's not they, they've not been not good yeah. uh, in the years since you know there have been years where they've been very good but um they were just on a, at a different level compared to the 
rest of the country back then. Yeah, I remember when Army was on its roll starting in 2016 to 2018. You know, you always went back to the 1996 team and that 10 yeah. and 2 team. And uh, you always said, well, this was the first time since 1996, most of the time when you were going back to. But to think back, you know, wow, you're talking <laughs> over 60 years now. That was the last time, the 58 team was the last time they were in the top 10. That is just. And like you said, there were some good teams in the 80s with Jim Young. There was that 96 team under Bob Sutton, and Munkin had, you know, the 11th and win team. But, wow, that's quite an accomplishment. And to be number one in the country, too, right, at one point during that right. season, I mean, it's just um, – we talked about the size difference, right? What – like Bob Nova – I think I remember talking to Bob Nova Gratz at a, um, an Army uh, golf function that um, – like, yeah. What was an offensive line back then? Like maybe two, was it around 200? Their, their biggest lineman was Ed Bagdonis, who I think, was he a hammer thrower or a discus thrower at the Olympics in 1960 in Rome? Wow. Um, Ed Bagdonis was their biggest lineman and he went 225 yeah. on, on his biggest day. Um, I, Monk Hilliard told me they got off the plane at the, in Houston for the Rice game and, and the guys were like, where's the rest of the team? You know, where's your lineman? And he's like, I am a lineman. Yeah, and I think like going back to my coverage days, I think that when Rich Ellerson came in, right? Rich Ellerson was all about having the lighter lineman. Um, yeah. yeah, and I remember like Army lining up a 240 pound like left tackle at times going up against a guy who was like, you know, almost had not 100 pounds, but 60 plus pounds on him. You know, it was, uh, I don't know if that was just Rich Ellerson's, um, you know, style back then or I don't think he was throwing it back to the red Bla red Blake years I doubt it right <laughs> no I mean I, I think Ellerson I, I so wanted him to succeed I, I thought he he got so many things about the academy and about cadets uh, but I you know just I, I remember when he told me that like he wanted his lineman to be able to play a linebacker and he wanted to be able to plug anybody in anywhere on the field and I was like this doesn't sound this doesn't sound like it's gonna work. <laughs> Um, you know, and they, they did actually go to a bowl game and win a bowl game. So, you know, he was doing something right, but it was not, it was not sustainable. I don't think that whole interchangeable theory of, of your players. I think he probably was the only army coach that would ever put Ollie Villanueva at wide receiver senior year. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think of that every time I see him, like he's a stud left tackle for the Steelers now. And, you know, the guy was, he was a tight end and a receiver at army. It was crazy. It was, it was nuts to see that, like, walking into uh, the Foley Center one, I think it was probably preseason practice, and I see the um, equipment managers is about half Ollie's height trying to get a new jersey on Ollie that was, like, almost half-fitting him, so to speak. And I'm like – and we even shot a picture of it when I was at the newspaper, and I'm like, really, this is happening? And he had a guy – I think – I'm pretty sure he started – as a as a tackle his junior year most of almost every game during the season yeah. and talking to like steve anderson steve anderson does a podcast with me um man they just raved about like ali right and his just physical gifts and that he could probably play anywhere on the field for his size but ellerson puts him on receiver <laughs> and I, I i swear like till this day he might be the best wide receiver that I've seen play at Army during my time in like right. over since two thousand seven on. Well, and I've always I've always had the limitation for Army, and this is where like the the fifty eight season was a, a turning point, like because the pros became so important e even one year later. Um, you know they 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 just can't recruit quarterbacks. If you if you you know a quarterback who can throw the ball, um, I think Lehman Hall might have been the last great true passer they had. Um, you know, and he could throw the ball a long way, um, but it was it was just um, it's just something that Army just doesn't excel at, and it's it's tough to do, and especially when you run an option offense, and and so even if you have Ali Villanueva at a wide receiver, like you've still got to get him the ball, and you know, throwing to his back shoulder or throwing you know, throwing a jump ball for him is it's not as easy as it sounds, and you know you've got to have somebody who can do that, and I, that that limited them, I thought, you know. Yeah, I mean, I look at like in the last in the last couple of years, you look at Kelvin Hopkins. He was able, probably one of the Army's best throwing quarterbacks in the last sure. decade, to see. And even like, I think that even having Hopkins, sometimes the way that the mentality of the, of the play calling is, 
You know, they don't want to throw it that often. You know, if they throw no. it double digits a game, that's really a lot. In our Tyler, I remember when I was a cadet in the 80s and everybody was, they'd won, they'd been five and, you know, six and five and they'd won games and they'd won bowl games. And people were like antsy for Jim Young to start throwing the ball. And I was like, are you, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Like, this is, this is it. Kick it out. That's our offense. That That is it. That works. And so I like, well, Army is like transcendently good these days when they have a quarterback who can throw the ball like Hopkins or back in 96, Ronnie Makeda. Yeah. Um, you know, when they have a quarterback who can throw a little bit, it really, they turn into something special. It's crazy when like, just from the last few years, when you look at the mod Bradshaw and like not having a completed pass and winning a football game, you know, yeah. and, or maybe not even attempting a pass and winning a football game. I mean, it's just, yeah. and then I, you hear it from army fans all the time. I think there's this one fan that I've heard from for the last 15 years that want to throw the short pass, you know, to get, to get the, um, cause you know, like, like you said before with the lone, with the lonesome end, right. You're, they're loading the box. Well, they're still doing that today against army, right. They're still right. loading the box there. And like, how do you counter that? Well, does a, does one pass, stop them from loading the box? Maybe, maybe, probably not, you know? So, I mean, it's just. I, I think that the way they do it now is pretty smart. Like they pick their spots and they, they take their shot and they, you know, two times out of three, it seems to me it succeeds. And that seems to be enough to just enough to loosen things up. But like teams know they're going to run and, you know, the option is predicated upon sort of breaking it down to it, like the quarterback read and then a one-on-one matchup between the whoever's the ball carrier is and there's a tackler out there um i i like army when they run the ball i'm, I'm just fine with them running the ball all game long i get i've seen like that was todd berry's whole thing was we're going to turn it into a spread offense like you got to be kidding me like this is not you i knew that was going to that was doomed to failure like from the moment they tried it but they were going to try it so okay yeah and then you sorry then- I'm, I'm complaining now Sorry, yeah, now, if we go back there, then we, we realize how, how much that setback army, right? How long that no. setback army doing that? I mean, setback almost a decade of army football was set back because maybe of a decision like that. And That's right. It's, it's crazy. When, I, when I'm reading the book and, and from you, um, speaking of the book, do you think, because you said that, you know, when you were first putting the idea together that you were, you know, there was there enough to write a book? Of course, there was enough to write a book. Do you think that how much more did you have really that you that you weren't that, that maybe you didn't get into the book that maybe you you would have liked? Was there a lot more? Well, much I, more? One thing I struggled with was like how much to do after the season ended. Like mm-hmm. I was writing about this great transcendent season. I mean, they were the last team to ever be number one. They were the last team to beat Notre Dame. The last to have a Heisman Trophy winner. Like they were just in so many ways. You know, Red Blake's last team. They were just this amazing you know, collection of guys, but they also like went on to like lives for a year, you know, Bill, what Bill Carpenter did is like incredible and hot, you know, Dawkins really had an amazing career and, and uh, Novogratz and all these, you know, it was it, I, me putting an appendix together, like, you know, sort of a, with a precy on everybody's like sort of like later years was, was my solution. But I, I'm really still not satisfied with how I was able to, to end that book because I would have liked to have like, you know, given some of the guys that are due. I mean, you know, Monk Hilliard was in the Army for 25, 30 years. Like, but Bill Rao went on to a great coaching career and almost became the coach Army. Like, you know, it, there's some interesting interesting dudes. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, didn't get to finish their stories to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, well, well, uh, Army football players especially, right? Yeah, it's the football for their four years, or in this, in this case, right, three years um, back in the day. But then yeah. their their careers after is, is could can be as much engaging as their, their football careers, right? I mean, because yeah. of you know what they're what they're uh, doing after they graduate, that's so much different than most, right? I mean, it's it's crazy it's to like, see Dawkins. I mean, crazy. Yeah, it was, it's a unique crew, the '58 team. And I remember, I one of the trips I made, I had to pick and choose my trips because you know I, I had my advance and I still I was working at Sports Illustrated, so I had to like pick and choose when I was going to travel. And I went out to Montana to see Carpenter um, and spent a, you know, a long weekend sort of basically staying in, in the town outside his, you know, his home where he lived, but then spending all day at his house, but basically in his basement going through his old 
the clip, the clipping books that his mother had put together for him. Like I was really, and talking to him, but I remember him stopping me at one point and being like, look, if this is about me, you can go home right now. Like this book is not about me. It's about Red Blake. And I, I mean, it was delivered in typical Bill Carpenter blunt fashion, but I, you know, that was one thing that I think was unique to all of them was they, they went, and you mentioned him earlier, they went on and on about how that begin, team began and ended with Red Blake. The very first interview I ever did for that book was with Bob Novogratz and we were about two minutes in and he told me it was all about Red Blake that, you know, it was, it just, he defined that team in that time in so many ways at West Point. Um, and it, it was funny because like, you know, there was this romanticism that's grown up over the lonely end. And I had the playbooks. I had, you know, one of the assistant coaches gave me the playbooks. I had the lonely end playbooks for a long time. Wow. Uh, and, uh, they weren't that different. And I, I was going through them one time with, with Bill Rao and he was like, you know, we, you know, they, they didn't, we didn't notice anything. Nobody walked out of the first day of practice going, wow, we're really doing something different here. They never gave it a second thought. They just, you know, they trusted Red Blake implicitly and they did what he told them to do. And it turned into this incredible season. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was looking at some of the, there is some of the um, playbook drawings, so to speak in your book. Yeah. And- well, I, I see the bazooka. The bazooka formation was that was that a formation? The bazooka. What was what was that? I think that was, was that the. I'm trying to remember. It's been a while, but it, that's the unbalanced line. I think. Yeah. Was, so yeah. the bazooka formation was an unbalanced line that they'd used the year before, and I think on the first running play of the game, the second play, the Army received the opening kickoff against Notre Dame, and they played in Philadelphia at the Polo Grounds or something. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they received the opening kickoff and the first play was a running play to Anderson out of the bazooka formation. And he went 81 yards for a touchdown. And he's like, all I could hear was my foot hitting the ground and my breath. Like, and then, and then I got in the end zone and the waves of sound just washed over me. It was uh, it was tremendous, but Blake took the bazooka formation, which was an unbalanced line with the two tackles. Yeah. Uh, I believe it was uh, Novogratz and Hilliard lined up next to each other. Yeah. Was it, or, yeah. I'm going to blank on the lines there, Sal, but um, it was an unbalanced line. And, and um, you know, basically uh, Don Usry was all by himself next to the guard on one side of the field. Yeah. And on the other side, it was unbalanced with Carpenter way up there. And uh, that was, that was how they ran their whole offense the next year was out of the bazooka formation. It, it, you know, just when you talk about unbalanced lines, that's something that Jeff Munkin and Brent Davis have incorporated to the, the current Army that's right. offensive scheme, right? And you see and it worked. Yeah, it, it's working, and it, it, you see a lot this year, especially. Um, Chris Cameron is is their number one tight end. Yeah. Uh, his dad is Cam Cam Cameron, uh, the college and pro coach. And you look at like uh, he'll go to one side. Sometimes he'll go to one side, and they'll move the tackles over to the other side. And you look at. Chris can play tackle at Army if he wanted to. He's that he's that big, and he's almost like, in a ways, he's almost another lineman. But when you see right. the unbalanced line, I mean, they I think they started doing that right around when they started having those successful seasons, like the eight win season, then the ten eleven win season. And right. you look at them like, what's going on here? Oh wait, and sometimes they actually mask they would masquerade a sixth offensive lineman as a tight end. Um, I know they did it with Brett. I think Mike Johnson currently the senior guard on the team and one of their best blockers. I believe his freshman year, I recall him going into the, going into the game with a, a jersey number in the 40s and and playing like that the tight end spot and almost like giving him a, an extra offensive lineman. Did he go out for pass? I don't remember. I think he was just in there to like block <laughs> and stuff. But it, it, it's pretty neat to hear back on, in the 58 season that the unbalanced line was part, a, a pretty big part of the Army offense. And now today – you know, the coaches have incorporated some of that. Maybe, I don't know if it's from, who knows where it's from. Is it from watch? I don't think they've, I don't think it goes back that long, but it's pretty cool to see that. You know, I, I believe Cam Cameron is the son-in-law of Army's offensive coordinator for the 58 team. And I'm trying to remember the guy's name. If Would oh, you wow. let me grab my book back? Yeah, I got yeah, it. I got absolutely, my book absolutely. Hey, oh, uh, guys, that people that are listening right now to us, if you have a comment or a question, for Mark or I, please feel free to send it in through the live chat. We'll put it up and we'll answer it and uh, comment on it. Um, it's great having Mark Beach here. He uh, wrote the book, When Saturdays Matter the Most. It's the last uh, golden age of Army football, uh, the 1958 season. And we're just finding like different connections here right now. I, so Tom Harp, was the, Tom Harp was the offensive coordinator, for want of a better term, in, in 58. 
And his son-in-law, I believe, is Cam Cameron, um, the NFL coach. I said Tom Harp went on to coach at Cornell. He'd been a high school coach in Ohio before he got to Army, but he was um, he was integral to the to the to the you know birth of the lonely end. I remember he told me this story about you know Blake Blake met them on New Year's Day or something, and and because yeah. uh, no team was going to get a jump on Army football, uh, and. He was, you know, he he told them what their offensive problem was, and he wanted them to think about it. You know, that they had to they had to figure out some way to beat the Oklahoma defense, which was a basically a run blitz on every down. Yeah. Uh, and so he he was, gave them all a week to think about it, and he said, "We'll come back here in a week, and you know, you'll present your ideas." And Harp couldn't even remember if they got through their ideas. Blake drew the lonely information on the board, and he said, "You know, what if we, you know, what if we put this guy out here?" And they were like, "Well, sir, that's just a wide receiver." And he was like, "But he's out there all the time." And then they went up and stood in the snow and they realized like you know, on Mikey stadium on the field up there. And, and uh, when they realized how far Blake wanted the, the lonely end to stand out there, they were like, well, this could actually be something. It's, it's crazy. I was thinking about uh, reading the passage in the book about how Pete Dawkins actually got, you know, he was kind of buried on the depth chart before, I guess, um, so, before his sophomore season in the scrimmage against Syracuse. He takes a, a punter kick return to the house, right? And and Blake says, "Okay, we use this guy. This is a guy who became a Heisman Trophy winner." That I don't know if that doesn't happen. Is he still going to see the field and be a, like likely, right? But I mean, that was something that really caught my eye. That story. It's, so. it's funky. Like Dawkins came as a left-handed quarterback, and I, you know what I didn't realize about Pete Dawkins was he came to West Point right out of high school. I, well, I realized that about Pete Dawkins. I didn't realize about most of his teammates. They all, you know, Carpenter was my dad's age. Carpenter has spent a year at Manlius. They all, almost all of them went to some sort of prep school. I think Bill Rao and uh, and Dawkins were unique in the sense that they didn't spend any time at any prep schools. Uh, they they came straight to West Point, and you're you're exactly right. Dawkins was buried on the depth chart as a left-handed quarterback. I mean, you know, when people make a big deal about the halfback option uh, in '58, but. Anderson completed 10 of 15 passes. I think Dawkins was like three of 12 or three of eight. Like he wasn't a great passer. Like, you know, they had to do it, but he was determined. He was a, this, he was a real competitor there. You know, and that Pete's so, I don't want to use the word glib because that's got negative connotations, but he's so good. And there's so many situations with people. He's just, you know, it, People think that this natural, he's this naturally good and brilliant all the time. And Pete's a, Pete's a real, like he fought polio when he was a kid. And and uh, he, the doctor told him he'd probably never play football again. And and what I found was was Pete's whole attitude was, was born from something, you know, basically I'll show you. And that's what he did at West Point. And that's what he'd done when he beat polio and, you know, proved the doctors wrong. And, and uh, you know, I think to a certain extent, like he'd already, he'd already shown everybody by the time he got out of West Point. And, and so there was no nobody else left to prove himself to. It's amazing. It's amazing how he's still an ambassador to the program, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I see him, like when po- uh, pre-pandemic he was on the sidelines for the big games. I know uh, Jeff Munkin has um, kept him really close to the program. And you know, I remember the last time I saw him was probably on the sidelines for an Air Force game a couple of years back, I believe, at Mikey Stadium. But he was he's always he was always there, always present. Right. You know, I mean, I think that. When you wow, when you have a guy like that who's been so successful in almost everything he's done, from you know from college to you know look as a Rhodes Scholar to business, I mean, I don't know. I think that I don't know if the appreciation now. People like to hear what he overcome when he was a kid from you. People might not know that about Pete Dawkins. They might only see Heisman Trophy winner under right. his name, but there's so much more to the man. Right? Well, it's funny. Like I remember reading it. There was a story in the newspaper. Like. You know, where you, the writer actually quotes Dawkins begging him not to make too much of it. It was a mild case of polio, and Dawkins was careful to say that. But I mean, you know, that he was he was still built up quite a bit in the press, and I, I think I think because he he became so famous, like he's as famous as any college football player I can think of, really, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, he became so famous, and I think people forget like what a brilliant football player he was. He scored twelve touchdowns in '58. He, he like average 30 yards a catch. I mean, he was just, he was a great halfback. Like it was, it's not, you know, him winning the Heisman Trophy was not some fluke. Uh, Bob Anderson was a tremendous football player, probably a better passer. 
um, had been all America the year before. Um, you know, and, and actually one of the guys in the 58 team told me that Novogratz was better at his position than either Anderson or Dawkins was at their positions. Like they said, Novogratz was the best football player on the team. So there's, there's a lot of competition on that team for like, who was the defining character. But I just think that, you know, there's a reason Dawkins is on the cover of my book. Um, and he's still an ambassador for the program is he was, he, he lived up to all the hype in 58, you know? Yeah, because I, I look at like if you want, if we want to talk about the Navy program, Roger Staubach is still one of their quote faces of their yeah. history in their program, right? And I think that Pete Dawkins is doesn't really, I don't know, doesn't get to mention maybe as as he should as being a legend that he was. And yeah. um, you know, I think sometimes I'm more, and this was me too. I mean, Raleigh Stitchway, right, the quarterback during the, the Staubach times. I, I tend to maybe um, reach out to a little bit more when I was doing a story about the history of the program and stuff like that. And yeah, I would contact uh, Pete when I, when I could, but maybe I wish I would have reached out a little bit more, you know, to him because I think there was the, the, the stories in the, in the book of. When I was reaching out to him for the book, he's a, he's a busy guy. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was like, okay, you had to go through a secretary, which was the same with Stallback too. When I tried yeah. to get Stallback on the phone, you know, you leave a message and you keep your fingers crossed that you get a call back, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, but uh, I mean, it's, it's just like, I think that, you know, you look at, like we talked about, we talked about this team. I mean, wow. Is there anything that we really haven't said about the 58 team? I mean, yeah, we could probably have, we could talk for hours about just their greatness and maybe, maybe kind of in the whole picture of college football, like and even their players, maybe just a not not as appreci uh, appreciation that maybe should have been a little bit more. Yeah, yeah I think um, you know I, I think it's appreciated as being sort of a, a magical season, a fluky season. And I don't I don't think it was getting quite the respect it deserved as a great season. Um, you know, a, a deeply great season, and so I, I that was one reason I, I felt like the book. You know, one thing I learned as I was writing the book that I felt you know sort of deserved to be brought out. So, no doubt. And now you you followed this up with a book on the Packers, right? Yeah, I I, um, I took a, a basically a five year break between the publication of that of the Army book and and the Packers, and then I I, I remember talking to my wife about it one night, and I was like, you know, in in two years the Packers are going to turn a hundred, and nobody's doing a book, and if I don't do the book, um, I'm going to kick myself when somebody else does it, so I'm going to do it. And she was like, okay. And we both didn't quite know what we were getting ourselves into. We've got two little kids, um, but yeah, it was a, it was an undertaking, more of an undertaking than write about one season. I had to write about a hundred. Wow, wow. Um, now you grew up a Packers fan, right, or no? Uh, sort of. Like I was, you know, my dad was a West Point grad and in the army, so we moved all the time when I was a kid. I, if there was a team we rooted for, it was probably the Washington at that time Redskins. Yeah. Um, because like, you know, they'd been on the radio when my dad was a kid and he followed them all along. And so I followed who my dad followed. But when we moved to Wisconsin, it, you know, even though the Packers were terrible, it was hard not to become, you know, rooters and supporters. But I, I you know, I, I had a big kind of conflict with my publisher when I was doing the promotional materials to the book because I didn't want to describe myself as a fan because I, I tried really hard to make it a a a serious work of, of journalism, of, of um, history, because the Packers history is really good and it's been told wrong a lot. Um, and so I, my goal was to get it right. And, and um, so I devoted a lot of energy to that. And it took a long time and a lot of work. I, I, when you think of NFL franchises, right? I mean, I don't think there's one with a deeper history than the Packers, really. Well, I, I think you, you follow the Arizona Cardinals. And I think the Cardinals, yeah. besides the Bears, the Cardinals are the old the Cardinals go back to 1897. I mean, it's it's crazy. Right. Yeah. Um, but they, so they've been around in one form or another since then. The Packers go back to 1919, August 11th, 1919, um, was the day they were created and the day they were born. And Curly Lambeau was there. Um, one year later, they were in the two years later, I think they were in the NFL. Um, yeah, and so it's you know they're, they're sort of the last of the small town teams. Um, and they've they've existed because the town was so invested in in uh, in keeping them alive, and it was really, you know, besides the Lombardi connection, there were all sorts yeah. of like, you know fun things for me to write about. It was just uh, people talk about the Packers as being different because they're publicly owned and they're 
they're the, from the smallest town in the NFL, but it really is, it goes beyond that because, you know, the, the rivalry grew out of the, there's a river that divides the town from east from west. And that rivalry means much more between those two sides of town, it means so much to the people in that town. And that's what the Packers grew out of was the rivalry between Green Bay East and Green Bay West High School. Um, and so they, they literally, they go back to the land itself and the people and, and they were kept alive. You know, their first stock sale was in 1923. So they've been selling stock and been publicly owned for almost their whole history. Wow. Yeah. A good friend of mine uh, is a Packers fan and season ticket holder. And I would, you know, he would, I mean, just the, the, the passion that they have for their team is in, incredible up there. I mean, I, 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 went, I had a chance to go up there, not during uh, the football season, but just um, it's, it's incredible that, you have to see that now the season success that they're having this season, then what they're yeah. one more they're one win away from another Super Bowl, right? So I mean, it's just it's just kind of crazy the consistency of 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 the of, of the franchise, no doubt, right? It really is. I mean, you know, the the seventies and the eighties were lean lean times. I mean, I, I still think the most important player in franchise history. I mean, you want to go back to Don Hudson or Corey Lambeau, but like, it's Brett Favre. Um, he really was on the field behind the resurrection of that team. There was Ron Wolf in the front office and Bob Harlan. Uh, but but Brett Favre was the, the guy on the field making it happen. Um and it was I remember I was a you know young army lieutenant coming back to Wisconsin every year after you know 92. And it was it was weird. Like they were you know he was winning these MVP awards and it was it was like validation of what we were all seeing. Um and it's crazy that the Packers have had two quarterbacks in, since 1992, basically, uh, Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. And it's really like I know the bad times are coming. <laughs> it's kind of like there's going to be a bad quarterback at some point, but like you know, so far so good. You look yeah, at what yeah, Brady's people in Green Bay do. You have a sense of like appreciating it while it lasts. You look at what Brady's doing this year, and why can't Aaron Rodgers play until he's 40? Right, at least maybe I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like I, it was funny watching Brady and Breeze on the field on Sunday. I mean, the one guy was clearly still playing just awesome, but one guy was coming to the end of his career. Like, you know, I, I think Breeze, I think it was time for him to go. Or he, you know, he saw the writing on the wall, not time for him to go. I wouldn't presume to say that. But but it was funny to me that, that there would be a drop-off for Breeze and Brady seems to be the same guy he was in 2000. I mean, I, you know, what's the guy doing? It's crazy. Hey, how fun was it when you were doing the Packers book? You talked about it briefly about the connection of Vince Lombardi, the Army connection of him being, you know, a coach at, at West Point, and then you know, kind of doing. I guess there's some research involved there too. Uh, I'm sure yeah. the Lombardi stories come to fruition. I heard, I have, I heard one that was just in rec a recruiting story about Lombardi that was just crazy. So I mean, I'm sure you have some good ones. Oh, I I know that I I remember uh, the story I always heard was there was you know. Red Blake saw him chewing out a cadet on the field and one day and pulled him aside. And like, as Blake would do, he issued a private correction to Lombardi and told him that we don't do that on the, the football field here, Vince. These, these kids get yelled at all day, um, you know, tone it down. Um, and I, they were, they were after Lombardi became, you know, the top coach in the NFL, there were quotes from Blake to that effect that he had to rein in this fiery personality. But I, what was fascinating to me, and David Marinus really brought it out in his book, uh, when pride still mattered, which is just a you know a Bible for me, um, was was that you know Lombardi liked to say that everything he learned about preparing and, and organizing a team to win, he learned from Red Blake, um, which was really was fascinating to me. And there was also there's a there's a segment of um, oh Lombardi's Lombardi's book, and I'm, I'm blanking on the title now. It's uh, he wrote it with the, the W.C. Hines, the great sports writer, okay. uh, might be run to daylight. Um, but Lombardi wrote this tremendous book about coaching, and it was about a week in the season of the Packers. And it was like he, he wrote about it. one of his anecdotes in the book was like, you know, we all get the call. I lived at West Point. We all get the call from Red Blake. Come on up to the gymnasium. We're going to watch some film. And, you know, I think they lost to Navy the year before, and, and they have to watch the Navy film again and again and again. Because uh, Blake was just obsessive about it, and I think Lombardi learned a lot of it uh, at West Point. He learned to be an obsessive there. Yeah, connection is incredible. Um, my my story was about I'm blanking on the player of Army back back around when your 1958 season comes up. He's from Jersey, comes up, 
for recruiting uh, visits, so to speak, at West Point. And his tryout, I mean, his look was basically playing a one-on-one basketball game, deemed one of the better athletes on the team, and totally taking them to school and Lombardi saying, you're coming here. You know, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really anything football-related. They just saw great athleticism in this player. And that that was the one. Because, you know, when, you, when I go, it's great. Like, we talk about the Packers' history in the NFL, but you look at Army and the history of its football program, right? To have the Blakes, to have the Lombardis, to have the Dawkinses, to have the Glenn Davises and the uh, Doc Blanchers. Jeff Munkin is big on, you know, saying we are one of the most historic programs in college football. And, yes, that history does date back into the, the 40s and the 50s, but that is not necessarily a bad thing, right? When you can go back and look at, wow, the, the, this program and um, – the his the history and the, and the and the people that have been a part of it through the years. So, so so much of like the early history of college football and then football in the U.S. in general has has been written by West Point graduates. It's 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 a it's a fascinating thing when you go back into into the history of the game. Um, there's there's West Pointers all over it. Um, you know at the at the pro and, and college level. You know I, I think um, uh, Elmer Oliphant, who is a hall of you know a great uh, fullback for army in the teens uh, used to make money playing for the Buffalo all Americans up on the weekends. Uh, he'd get leave from MacArthur to go do that. Um, when MacArthur was a superintendent uh, and, and um, that was, you know, it's, it's just, there are guys like Olaf who shot all through uh, college football. You know, one of um he didn't have a West Point recruiting base, but one of, one of Curly Lambeau's great secrets to building those great teams was, was the Notre Dame network. Curly Lambeau spent one semester at Notre Dame, but he used the Notre Dame network uh, for the first 20 years of his coaching career. I mean, Don Hudson was, his coach at Alabama was a guy named Frank Thomas who'd been a quarterback at Notre Dame not long after Lambeau had been there. He played with a lot of Lambeau's teammates. And and Frank Thomas is the one who tipped Curly Lambeau off to Don Hudson. Hmm. Um, Curly Lambeau was at the Shrine game in, in San Francisco. He never saw Don Hudson play a down. But uh, got got tipped off to him by Frank Thomas, and the rest is history. And so those those connections, I mean, I, I'm sure Blake made use of those too. Yeah, I mean, you look at like the coaches at West Point, right? Of course, Blake is the the guy that comes to mind. Uh, he's number one on the victories list. But then you see Jeff Munkin, you know, getting close to 50 career wins at West Point, and you know, passing like a Bob Sutton and nearing nearing, you know. Jim Young, and it's just like wow. You look at Jim Young Hall of Famer, right? Red Blake Hall of Famer. I, I'm missing, um, I'm missing the guy who coached in the '60s. Um, Tom Cahill. Uh, Tom not, Cahill. Tom Cahill, and then also the guy who coached at LSU. Um, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. And they they won the national championship in '58. Yeah, I, I mean another great coach. I, I I'll look it up real quick. Pepsi and Paul. Pepsi and Paul. What was it? Paul Dietzel. Paul, Paul Dietzel. Dietzel. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it's just the now. You know, I mean. I he got a giant story in Sports Illustrated. They, when, when he came back to Army, he coached in the sixth. They thought they were going to be. Right. They thought the glory days were back. Yeah. They were ready. Yeah, I don't know. If he, I don't think his, he really didn't last as long as many would have thought about. No, I mean, he ran up against, you know, the, the fact that the NFL was a, was a huge deal by, by the early 60s. It was, it had become, like, way more important than college football. And, and uh you know, guys, you know, three to five years, which was the Army commitment back then, was just too long to wait for for fame and fortune. No doubt. Four four years at Army. Uh, th- that's right. The connection with Paul Dietzel was Rich Ellerson's brother, John, was the captain of his first Army team back in 1962. I remember Rich Ellerson's um, brother did, did a, did, was a West Point grad, too. Uh, it, it, it's crazy. And I guess um, – you know, what I was getting at is a lot of people like now in college football, when they see an opening happen at like in an SEC, maybe middle, mid-level um, SEC or a power five program, Jeff Munkin's name is always mentioned, right? Jeff, because of the job he's done at West Point. And I've always said that I don't, I don't think he's necessarily chasing Red Blake at all, but I think that he would want, I think I always said that maybe he wanted to be mentioned as the next, you know, Red Blake, Jeff Munkin. Right under right. Blake, as far as like you know, the all-time wins list and that kind of stuff. Maybe I'm off base here, but I always think when you're there for seven years at West Point, look how long Blake was. Right, 
when you're there for seven years, you, it, it becomes like more than just a coaching job, right? It becomes a little right. bit more. And I think that, you know, uh, I, I think that he obviously hearing, I talked to Bob Beretta. Uh, we had a podcast with Bob Beretta um, a, a couple of weeks ago. It was talking about how just Jeff was the right man for the job. And you look at the guys at the service academies, right? Niamatolo has been at Navy forever. Troy Calhoun's been at Air Force forever. It took Army a while, but they they, they found their guy, and I think. That's well, I really um like you know Paul Johnson was a, he he is a great football coach, but he went to you know Navy and and uh, Army like an Air Force. They do great against uh, those those big SEC teams or those you know Power Five teams. Yeah, and they don't play them all the time, and those guys never see that offense. Um, Paul Johnson ran that thing in the ACC that that offense in the ACC, and it just. Teams catch up to it, and that there is you can play defense against it. You can you can beat it, and uh, I don't think it'd be, it was quite as a novelty that it is when it's sort of the service academies and they play a national schedule and, yeah. and they, they kind of go around. Um, when you when you're playing it in your conference, it's uh, it becomes less of a special thing. And I always I felt I felt bad for Paul Johnson because he's a legitimately great coach, um, and uh, you just if, you know Georgia Tech he couldn't make that work every week. Yeah, and you look at Munkins from the Johnson tree, Niamatololos from the Johnson tree, right? Yeah. I mean, and they look at the success they've had at the academies. Wow. So, um, so what are you doing this weekend for the uh, the, the 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 Packers uh, Buccaneers uh, NFC Championship uh, game? Trying trying to find a way to kill time. I was I was stress baking and walking the dog all day on Saturday when they they played the Rams, and you know I, I think they're the early game on on uh, yeah. On Sunday, so I have, I might not have that much time, but I'm I'm pretty sure there's something going in the oven in the morning. I'm not not quite sure what that is. I I just got a new uh just got some new toys, so I like kitchen toys. I I might make some ice cream or something. I don't know. I got to come up with something to do because I I'll go crazy if I sit around and think about it because I the the Buccaneers are really good. Yeah, yeah, it should be it should be fun, and I you know I guess um a little out of history, right? I mean. For your book, for I mean, you wrote your book, but now there's a little bit more history that the Packers are are, are, are trying to add to the to the to the franchise. So. I mean, yeah, fourteenth the fourteenth championship that's that's far and away. Like thirteen is far and away the most. Um, fourteen would be huge. Awesome. Really appreciate your time tonight, Mark, to talk about. I mean, you really pay, you really give a, a Army fans a look into the past. Um, like I said, with this this book was this book was great. I still like. I remember uh, tweeting out a picture when I was on vacation down in Myrtle Beach last <laughs> summer. I still keep it in the back of my car uh, between oh. between the trunk and the back seat. That little spot right there. I still keep it in the back, just so you know. You never know when I'm waiting for my daughter, you know, for a, for a dance class or anything like that. You know, it's always in my car if I want a good read. Uh, really oh, great book, guys. If you haven't read. You know, Mark's book on Army football that 1958 season. Uh, please grab it when Saturdays matter the most. I mean, one of the, one of the best books I've I've, I've read uh, sports wise. Um, grab a copy of it, and then Mark's book on the Packers history. Check that out too. Thanks a lot for your time, Mark. Always great catching up. Oh, thank you, Sal. It was so good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Black Knight Nation podcast with your host, Sal Interdonato. For more information on your Army Black Knights, visit blackknightnation.com. And be sure to subscribe, follow, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app.